I'm Lance Garabi, executive producer of Mission Interplanetary. The Interplanetary Initiative, our sponsor, is recruiting its second fellow for the spring of 2023. In partnership with ASU's School of Historical, Philosophical, and Religious Studies, the initiative will support a project that addresses the human social and cultural implications of exploring outer space. To find out more, go to www.interplanetary.asu.edu people. So Joe, did you hear the update on that asteroid that NASA punched in space? I heard it, I saw it, I experienced feelings of awe. So for those that don't know, this is the DART mission that NASA sent to redirect an asteroid to try to protect humanity from the most existential external threat to our planet. And the goal here was to move the orbital period of this asteroid to change its trajectory through space. Their minimum goal was 73 seconds. Joe, how far do you think they managed to move it? Uh, I'll I'll guess uh, 10 minutes. Oh, even more than that. 32 minutes. Whoa. Yeah. Big deal. We can now protect ourselves from this massive existential threat to our planet. This is absolutely mind-blowing. Science fiction is becoming real. Revenge for the dinosaurs at last. This is like, wow, we've made this amazing progression. I don't think we really recognized that impact craters were a thing until we started doing nuclear tests in the around World War II. Then we got to the point where we recognized that, oh, these probably killed off the dinosaurs and maybe caused some other extinctions in the past but we couldn't do anything about it. And then we learned how to track them and now we can move them. Like like we have the ability to protect ourselves from the most existential external threat to our planet other than, you know, the sun blowing up. (laughs) But Tanya, my understanding is that even though we can protect ourselves from these asteroids, we still haven't found quite all of them. Are you following the ongoing drama about whether or not Congress will cough up the dough for the near-Earth object surveyor? telescope mission that would actually find all of these potentially city-killing asteroids? No. The Near-Earth Object Surveyor is an infrared space telescope that has been proposed. It would find all of the asteroids larger than about 100 feet in diameter that could potentially threaten Earth. Now that we've demonstrated the capacity to deflect these asteroids, I think Congress needs to cough up the dough, fund the space telescope, and let us find all the ones that we might potentially need to punch in the future. This seems like a no-brainer. When do they want to launch this if Congress gave them money? You know, if the money spigot opens, I think four years from now, we could have a a telescope uh, that's almost ready to ship and shoot. Hopefully nothing uh, comes too close to Earth between now and four years from now. (laughs) Yeah, fortunately, these risks happen on uh, tens of thousands or millions of year timescales. So we're probably, probably safe, but I can't guarantee it. I'm Tanya Harrison. I'm Joe O'Rourke. And welcome to Mission Interplanetary. On today's show, we're asking, what does religion have to do with space exploration? This week, Katie and Andrew are out, and so Joe and I are stepping in for this exciting conversation. It's a podcast coup. We're hosting Mission Interplanetary, and we're not giving it back. (laughs) Okay, this is the time we're supposed to talk about our weekly obsessions. Tanya, what are you obsessed with this week? I saw this great article in the New York Times talking about different ways for us to be searching for life in the universe. We've been doing the SETI sky scan sort of look, you know, where are people beaming radio signals out toward us looking for that next wow signal? And we haven't really seen anything. 
So now that we're getting a better idea of what kinds of things constitute biosignatures, like biological evidence of life or technosignatures, technical evidence of life, how can we look for those things? And how do we stop thinking about it in a human-centric lens? They talked to a professor named Adam Frank at the University of Rochester. So if you have a New York Times subscription, this is a really interesting article to take a look at. They brought up some interesting thoughts like, we have intelligent species here on Earth, like octopi. What if you have a planet full of intelligent cephalopods somewhere and they're not beaming radio signals out into space because they're underwater? So I, I'm just having so much fun thinking about the possibilities of these signatures on other planets. I think I read a very similar article in the New York Times that also argued that we can broaden our creativity about what sort of signals to look for if we brought in uh, the population of people who are involved in the search for extraterrestrial life as well. Uh, so I think SETI and everything like that is fascinating. And so I, of course, endorse any any argument that we should bring as many people into it as possible. Absolutely. What about you? What's your obsession? I am obsessed with intentional sci-fi these days, intentional futurism. One of my friends, Andrew Dana Hudson, just published a book called Our Shared Storm. And through it, he told five stories of possible climate futures. And he used science fiction as a way of making the predictions of climate scientists seem tangible to as broad an audience as possible. So I know this is a growing trend. I'm sort of jumping on a bandwagon here. But I think science fiction, uh, futurism, speculative fiction, all of these mediums of traditionally fiction, uh, well, they can stay fiction, but they're a great way to visualize our, our possible space futures and other futures. A colleague of mine, Shelby Parks, recently released a book that she calls Climate Fiction because it's sort of a sci-fi take on future climate things. Um, and I, I like the, the vision of that, kind of creating this new, sort of new genre for us to think about the future of our planet with a different lens, because sci-fi has always been so good at that for us to make a commentary on the current state of things and think about how things could be better in the future. And I think also sci-fi could be a really powerful tool to tell stories of the past. A lot of my own research focuses on understanding the histories of planets. Uh, for instance, I study Venus a lot, and you could write some really dark sci-fi about the people who lived on Venus before the climate catastrophe happened. So I'm, I'm interested in exploring, exploring a way to give more emotional heft to these scientific theories about how planets become habitable or less habitable over time. Well, I look forward now to your future Venusian climate fiction novel. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get to our big question for today's episode. Space exploration presents itself as a decidedly secular endeavor, which is to say it's non-religious. It's rooted in science, math, and engineering, not in human spirituality. Evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould claimed that science and religion are non-overlapping magisteria, two mutually exclusive areas of inquiry. Science is concerned with facts and religion with values. But are things really as tidy as all that with space exploration? History is peppered with instances that suggests it's not. For example, the crew of Apollo 8, the first crewed spacecraft to leave low Earth orbit, read passages from the biblical book of Genesis as they orbited the moon. So what does religion have to do with space exploration? To get answers, we spoke with Mary Jane Rubenstein. Mary Jane is someone who has thought long and deeply about this topic. She's professor of religion and science in society at Wesleyan University. Her research covers the philosophies and histories of religion and science, focusing on cosmology, ecology, and space exploration. Mary Jane is the author of several books, including Astrotopia, 
The Dangerous Religion of the Corporate Space Race, coming out in December of 2022. So I'm definitely looking forward to checking out the rest of this book. Absolutely. I've had it pre-ordered. I might even have pre-ordered multiple copies. I love doing this interview. I thought we really stretched ourselves and had a very fun conversation. Absolutely. We went in directions I didn't even expect, and Mary Jane is, is doing some really important work on this topic. We need the extended cut, though, because I think our conversation went about 10 times longer than this whole podcast. Absolutely. Part two. Stay tuned. <laughs> So here today, we have Mary Jane Rubenstein. Thank you so much for joining us on Mission Interplanetary. I am so excited to be here. Thank you so much. So to kick things off, tell us about the genesis of your book. What got you interested in this intersection between religion and space exploration? Ah, I love your use of the word genesis. I got excited about space exploration. Do you remember that time when Elon Musk uh, was was saying that announcing he was going to be build a huge rocket to go back to the moon? He was calling it the BFR or big effing rocket. And he uh, he's opened seats for purchase so that the, the rocket could get funded. And this one Japanese fashion designer ended up buying every seat on that on that prospective lunar rocket that doesn't even exist. And when everybody asked him at this press conference, like, why did you buy every seat? How much could that have possibly cost? He said, look, it was a lot of money, but I bought every seat on the BFR because I want to give it away to artists so that I can get everybody up around the moon, all these artists, up, visual artists, musicians, architects, get them up to the moon so that they can look back at Earth and we can advance my lifelong dream of world peace. And everybody was like, oh, And it was at that moment that I realized that the longings that we collectively seem to have with respect to outer space and the longings that people have traditionally had in religious sectors are not only related to one another, but they overlap and they inform one another. And a lot of what goes on, a lot of the justifications for the space program, a lot of the things that we want out of the space program sound a lot like religion to me and in fact do have uh, religious histories. So I started sort of digging those up. So not to give too many spoilers for the book, but can you tell us what does religion have to do with space exploration? (laughs) So um, as you probably know, religion has a lot to do with earthly exploration, that on earth, particularly the imperial religions, have funded and maybe more importantly have justified the exploration of the earth, the extraction of resources from the earth, the subjection of certain people to unfair labor practices, the elevation of other people as worthy of receiving the benefits of those labors. So uh, I think it's clear to most of us, we tend to talk in a U.S. context about the relationship of imperial Christianity to kind of earthly imperialism. That's pretty clear, right? We get all of these papal justifications for the ravaging of the land, for the extermination of indigenous Americans, for the enslavement of Africans. That's pretty clear. What people know less commonly is that that same kind of set of justifications, the same set of teachings that tells us, for example, that that minerals are resources for human advancement, that some humans are worth more than other humans, that humans are the most important species in the cosmos. Those same assumptions that are initially religious teachings have become some assumptions of just secular science, secular economics. And that's the kind of science and economics that is now looking to um, conquer, this is usually the way we hear the language of conquest a lot, to conquer outer space. 
So many people in the space sector, regardless of whether or not they identify as religious, might see space exploration as a secular endeavor and might start to get defensive about describing uh, space exploration as a religious endeavor. Uh, Where do you think that defensiveness comes from? And uh, is it possible to do space exploration in a purely secular way? Great. Now, this is one of those things, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? I'm a religion professor. So to a religion professor, everything looks religious. So I'm going to say, from my particular situated perspective. No, it is not possible to do anything in a totally secular context. If what we mean by secular is completely uncontaminated by any of the teachings that have traditionally been understood as religious, right? All of us are coming from cultural backgrounds. At least we can agree to that, right? All of us are coming from cultural backgrounds. Those cultural backgrounds have been deeply religiously informed in one manner or another. And for better or worse, Western science emerges from the history of Western religions. And so, for example, it was an imperial form of Christianity that taught us that rocks, for example, rivers, trees were uninhabited, do not have spirits, do not have life. So we can use them, take them, exploit them, cut them down. That is initially a religious teaching. It has been taken up as a scientific assumption, um, as an economic assumption, as a political assumption, but it's initially a religious teaching. Does it matter that it's initially a religious teaching? Well, kind of, because when we think about space exploration, for example, and we think about the kinds of ways that we'd like to conduct ourselves in outer space, it's simply not fair to say that the sciences have access to truth and the correct way of doing things, whereas everybody else has just particular limited cultural ways of doing things. So what seems to be important to me is for the natural sciences to take a look at their assumptions, to take a look at their values, to figure out where they come from, and to announce them as assumptions and values so that we can all decide together, right, all of us who have any kind of investment in what might be going on in outer space, we can decide if we like those values or if we might want to have different ones, right? But we all have values. And it may be that the the traditions, the cultural traditions, the religious traditions, the literary traditions that have produced the space industry, they might be perhaps like corrected or even supplemented or even supplanted by other traditions, by other kinds of teachings, by other kinds of values and assumptions and stories. So to follow up on that, what do you think is the most pernicious value that's currently embedded in the myths that guide space exploration? What what causes you the most fear about the way that humanity's space future might unfold? Yeah, the one I'm most upset about is the inanimacy of minerals. <laughs> the inanimacy of minerals, the lifelessness of rocks. I know this might sound crazy to people for whom rocks are lifeless, but Actually, if you talk to kind of anybody who's into rocks, rocks have lives, right? Rocks have histories. I'm worried about the approach to space that would treat rock formations, mineral formations, merely as a means of economic and social advancement for human beings. That story has not played itself out very well on Earth, and I'm worried about exporting it wholesale into outer space. I think even beyond the sort of mining aspect, which comes up a lot when you talk about the commercialization of space, that narrative has come into the way we explore space, even at the level of NASA thinking about how they're going to prioritize funding for missions. They tend to all revolve around the search for life, which inherently says that any place in our solar system where life can't survive, life as we know it, that is not something valuable for us to study. And certainly, Mm -hmm. 
you know, I'm a geologist. I think that some of the moons of Neptune and Uranus are amazing places from a geologic standpoint, but there's no chance that we're ever going to find any kind of even microbial life there. So I, I like the way that you point this out. Like there's intrinsic value to rocks. There's intrinsic value to these things that simply exist in the universe. And that makes them worth understanding and not necessarily just thinking about how we can exploit them, whether it's for life beyond just us to survive all the way to, can we make money off of this thing that's floating in space? Yeah, I think that that's right. Finding a way to prioritize knowledge over profit or over even habitability or exploration would be delightful. There's so much that we can learn from places that might not at all be habitable in our understanding of the world. Um, but yeah, if we think about uh, the moon, for example, the moon is not subject to the same kinds of planetary protection protocols that other bodies might be subject to um, because it's been determined that it cannot support anything like microbial life. So we now don't have the obligations to the moon internationally that we might have even to Mars. And the moon now, it seems to be sort of open season on the moon for establishing all sorts of bases, for mining the moon for water, for establishing it, as some uh, investors will say, as a sort of interplanetary gas station. Um, and incidentally, right, the folks who are talking about establishing the moon as an interplanetary gas station are also calling the mission that's going to be instrumental to making the moon into a gas station the Artemis mission. So there's this really strange way in which the religious heritage and the religious feeling towards space is on the one hand named and avowed and on the other hand totally disavowed. Right? It's kind of asserted and denied at the same time. So if we think about this idea of capitalism, even if we are anti-capitalist, anti-colonialist, most of us are still living our lives participating in a capitalist economy and contributing in some way or another to colonialist practices. It's kind of unavoidable with the, the way things have evolved to this point. But you're not suggesting that everyone stop buying computers and phones and quit their jobs. But is there something special about space exploration in this context? Should we abandon space exploration entirely because of the way that we're going in terms of the trajectory? Or should we wait until we've ab abolished some of these colonialist impulses or capitalism itself on the earth before we try to actually become multiplanetary and have humans living on the moon or Mars? That's a great question. You're absolutely right. None of us can claim any kind of purity or even like halfway decency with respect to capitalism and colonialism, especially not those of us who inhabit the sort of overdeveloped nations and walk around in white skin, right? We can't pretend to anything like that. No, I am not suggesting that we abolish space exploration, that we abolish the space program. I think what troubles me is that the U.S. has decided to allow private interests and corporate actors to lead the way in space exploration that the space sector has been turned over to private interests such that the agenda for space exploration will increasingly be set by shareholders, by stakeholders, by investors, and by mining corporations. The flip that happened about seven years ago when that previously public sector was turned over to the private sector. So now the bounds of what we do in space are set by the people who stand primarily to make money from space. That seems to be a, a bad step. I was hoping we could step back a little bit and talk about the role of our own home planet in the religious myths that guide space exploration. As you've pointed out, 
some of these new space billionaires conjure visions of an apocalyptic future for Earth, making Earth a sacrifice that starts our voyage into the cosmos. Whereas Jeff Bezos, I know, has said recently that his long-term goal is to zone Earth for residences and light industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, So can you talk about what the religious myths that guide our exploration of space imply for the future of our current home? So this is instructive. I mean, we can see Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos as operating in two kind of antiphonal or like opposed mythic apocalyptic registers. Um, The Elon Musk mythic register is you, you get a coming disaster and then a salvation, a promise of salvation, right? The coming disaster for Elon Musk is either an asteroid is going to come and wipe us out or Google is going to go haywire and AI is going to wipe us out. But like something is going to wipe out Earth at some point, even if it's, you know, tens of thousands of years into the future. And when Earth is wiped out, all of humanity, like the dinosaurs, will be wiped out. Therefore, either all of humanity will be wiped out forever, or there will be in the future some remnant, some human remnant, some human repository, some like planet B, where there are other humans who can continue the human species. This is the reason Elon Musk says that we have to get to another planet. We need a backup planet in case Earth is destroyed. So again, the coming disaster is humanity will be extinct in some way. And the promise, the messianic promise is that we can have an infinite future elsewhere in infinite. And when Musk is asked, like, but what about Earth? Like, what about Earth? He often says in interviews, like, F Earth. I don't, Earth is done. Earth is toast. Forget Earth. We're like, we're, we're on to the next thing. Forget it. Bezos, totally different story. Bezos is like, no, don't F Earth. Love Earth. We love Earth. I love Earth. Earth is beautiful. Like, we've seen a lot of other planets. Other planets seem to kind of suck. Like, Earth is great. You, you can't get parks anywhere other than Earth. You can't get birds. You can't get balloons. We have to figure out a way to save Earth. And the only way to save Earth is to get most of us the crap off this planet because we are destroying the Earth. So Bezos talks about climate change in a real way that Musk doesn't often want to, right? He particularly talks about um, energy use and humans' increasing need for energy. Um, And if we want a planet full of first-rate hospitals, first-rate universities, if we want a planet where everybody has a refrigerator, we're going to need to move our heavy industry and most of human consumption off-planet onto these like rotating space colonies. The Bezos wants to place it all five points. And at that point, he says, Earth can be turned into a national park or like a lovely place to go to college, like a place to visit, but not a place for most people. To... And so, boom, we've saved the Earth. That sounds good. That sounds great. Yeah. It's lovely. <laughs> it's lovely. But of course, we've, we've saved Earth by abandoning Earth. And in in the meantime, most of us are living in sort of manufactured places out in the middle of space, controlled by corporations, which, you know, it's like the start of a weird science fiction story. Like, there you are in a rotating space pod controlled by a very wealthy man where you can only get oxygen if people like you. It's like a little troubling, but like at least you have infinite power for all your devices because the solar arrays out there are going to do a lot more work than the solar arrays in New England, which kind of suck, right? So in both of these tales. So one is like, you know, F Earth and one is save Earth. But in both of these visions, what goes unquestioned is just the basic premises about the way that we're living right now, right? But I think it would be a good idea to ask um, how we might live differently before exporting this whole planet-destroying system beyond the planet. 
It's like on the one hand, you're acknowledging this system is destroying the planet. And on the other hand, you're saying like, all right, so let's do it out there too, right? It's a funny little two-step there. And there does seem to be a religious aspect to both of those perspectives coming from Musk and Bezos of the earth is screwed and either we can't do anything about it, so we need to go somewhere else, or we can't really do anything about it, so we're going to move a bunch of the crappy stuff we're doing right now off. And we're sort of taking the responsibility off of ourselves because it's something bigger than we are. And I think that often discounts the power of humans. Like we see how much we are able to impact literally the entire planet through things like climate change. So I feel like something that religion does in a lot of cases is is a disservice to the power of the individual and the power of people to be able to enact large-scale change. And so I don't know why we don't have any of these people thinking about it in those terms. Like, what can we actually do to fix this rather than just saying, it's too far gone, we're not even going to bother, it's easier to go to Mars, which is harder to live on than going to Antarctica, and only you know a couple thousand people live in Antarctica. <laughs> so why are we just going to blow things up and go somewhere else? It doesn't really make any sense. So it's at this point that I think it's really helpful to remember that religions come in a lot of different flavors, right? And that one of the really helpful taxonomies in religious studies is to think about religions that are utopian in constitution that think about their homes as elsewhere, right? Your real home is not here. It's somewhere else. It's in heaven. It's in Valhalla. Like we belong elsewhere, which is particularly the Musk line, right? We belong elsewhere. We belong in the stars. This is not our home. Bezos even a little bit. This is not our home anymore. I'm going to build you a utopia. Utopian religions versus locative religions. Locative religions from locusts, right? Which think of themselves as rooted in and belonging to the place they are from. For a number of our religious traditions, our spiritual traditions, even our philosophical traditions, it doesn't make sense to talk about humanity apart from humus. It doesn't, humans are of the earth. They belong here. And particularly for indigenous traditions, the humans of this particular society belong in this particular place. So traditions that are not fundamentally utopian can teach us a lot about how to live in a place in a way that doesn't destroy that place (laughs) because they don't feel fundamentally like they belong elsewhere. They feel like fundamentally they belong here. So there's a stewardship of the earth, of the gifts of the earth. There's a way of living with and through and by means of the land that doesn't destroy the land in the process. So what's what are known as traditional indigenous knowledges, traditionalist ecological knowledges can draw from a different wealth of cultural and religious teachings than our, say, utopian religions do. So let me ask a ridiculous question just to make sure I'm not missing out. Is there a best religion? Is there one that is particularly well-suited to space exploration that we should just evangelize and convert Musk and Bezos and all of ourselves to? Or or do we really need uh, to embark on a larger project of thinking something new? That's amazing. And I love that you're asking this with a smile on your face, because of course, the problem with finding the best religion and converting everybody is that the minute you go to try to take over the world, you've made your best religion into the worst religion, right? So I don't think there's a best religion. And with as as much honor as we might talk about a number of our traditions, all of them have participated in both life affirming and life denying processes. I don't think there's a best religion. I think that there are, again, life-affirming and cosmos-affirming teachings, and that those teachings can be found across an array of religious traditions, across all of them, even the kind of Christianity that took over the globe. If you ask Pope Francis how we should be behaving in outer space, he's going to give you a set 
of prescriptions that's going to sound a lot like if you ask a representation of the Diné Nation, what it would look like to act well in outer space, right? So I think the trick instead is for all of us to take a bit of a step back, to think about our values and to think about our teachings, to figure out collectively what is life-giving, life-affirming, and what has a tendency to produce a sustainable and just future, and then to figure out where in our traditions we find them, right? And then to build alliances among representatives of those traditions, rather than trying to convert everybody to some tradition. So if we backtrack a little bit, talking about resources and kind of the idea that you mentioned in your book about Manifest Destiny and how that narrative is now being applied to space exploration and a lot of dialogue. In looking at colonialism on the earth, it's obviously resulted in a lot of really horrible things being done to indigenous populations everywhere. But when you're looking at something like the moon or Mars, where you can definitively say, we're pretty sure there is no intelligent life there. For the people that you can't make that emotional connection to by saying rocks matter, what what is the logic that you can give to those people to say, this is still the wrong narrative to have when you're going to these places, even if there is no intelligent life that's there? I mean, what's wrong with colonialism if there's no indigenous population to exterminate when you get to the moon or to Mars or something like that? There's no life on the moon. And I think for a number of people, we'll say, look, okay, we understand the doctrine of terra nullius, this idea that the North Amer- that North America, that Australia were empty lands that could just be taken because nothing was happening on them. That was wrong with respect to those lands. Of course, there were people there, there were communities there, there were there were animals there, there were trees there. But like on Mars and the Moon, there's freaking nothing. There's like actually nothing there. It's this actual terra nullius. Like we've got it right this time. It's finally, finally there. I would want to ask a couple of questions. The first is: Were the practices of land expropriation and the extraction of resources were those beneficial to the laborers who were undertaking those projects? Like, What kind of labor practices did those inspire? And do we want to emulate them in a place where you have no reliable access to oxygen? Do you want to have that kind of relationship to your employer in a place where that person controls access to the most basic things you need for existence? Right? Where if you don't produce sufficient amounts of whatever the resources are, you're cut off from what? from planetary life, because these are the kinds of labor practices that profiteering by means of extractionism requires. It requires low-wage, exploitable labor in order to maximize profits. Do we want to do that to people, to laborers, and send them into outer space? This is one question. The other question is, or the other suggestion would be, just as it might have made sense during the exploration of the so-called new world, just as it might have made sense to stop and ask indigenous nations how they wanted to use the land and what they were up to on the land and what their priorities were and how we might work together. It might make some sense to do the same thing with respect to outer space, which is to say, according to whom are there no indigenous populations beyond Earth? 
Certainly, according to the Mars rover, certainly according to Armstrong and Aldrin and the folks who've explored the moon. But there are plenty of indigenous traditions that teach that actually there are ancestors in the stars or there are ancestors on other planets or there are ancestors on the moon and in the cosmic pathways. And that the way that we are already approaching the pollution of, say, low Earth orbit um, is deeply insulting to the people who live it, right? So it's not uninhabited, according to a lot of people of the world. So why not do the same thing and ask indigenous nations if there are indigenous people in the stars? And if there are, according to some, which there are according to some nations, how ought we to behave out there? How do you visit? How do you visit and be a, a decent visitor and a, uh, and, a, and a nice guest of a place that isn't yours? Right? To quickly follow up on that, I was wondering if we've been stumbling into a colonialist trap in our own conversation. A few times we've all brought up a sort of dichotomy between microbial life and intelligent life. Microbial life, presumably scientists can do with what they will, whereas intelligent life will have to respect via means TBD. But do you think that even drawing that distinction is an example of a a sort of religious myth or a a framework that we've brought with us unintentionally that we should question? Yeah, sure, absolutely. And, you know, even Carl Sagan said, if there are microbes on Mars, then Mars belongs to the microbes. We have absolutely no right to go in there and mess with anything that the biosphere might be trying to do on Mars. But certainly anywhere that you try to draw a line between important life and unimportant life, you've reasserted what you could call a colonialist framework, right, if you want to call it that. Yeah, I think that's really important. And NASA, as it's set up, as the schema of planetary protection currently exists, is is not set up in that way. If if Mars is covered in microbes, then Mars belongs to the scientists and the microbes Mm -hmm. have no rights that we're bound to respect. So I think that that might be something that people have more discussion about in the future. Well, and it's funny because if you read like the work of Lynn Margulis, she, she talks about bacteria in a way that makes it clear that bacteria are basically the creators of life on this planet, presumably on any planet. Annihilating microbes would be interfering with the very generators of life itself. Like there's a, there's a whole theology to be written about bacteria and microbes, a whole way to think about them as the actual sort of creator gods. Um, but that would be for a different kind of conversation. Amazing. I love that. Uh, just for our audio listeners, I want to emphasize that I've been nodding very heavily to all of Andrew's <laughs> answers here. I'm now just imagining the Church of the Archaea. It just, it would be pretty epic. I'm so there. So Finally, there. the perfect religion. We found it. <laughs> <laughs> I guess to tie this all back up, MJ, what would you like the future to be for religion and space exploration? And then what should we be doing right now to achieve that future? No pressure. Um, I'd like it to be clear that religion isn't something that we like add on to space exploration. Religious teachings are informing the most fundamental assumptions about what we can, should, and have to do in outer space. So I would like to get to a place where all of these assumptions about who's important, who matters, how it's possible to behave are already religiously inflected. And I'd like to imagine some kind of space in which scientific luminaries, religious leaders, philosophers, and writers and literary geniuses can get together and think about what kinds of stories they want to tell and what kind of stories they want to enact in space. But this is going to first require getting clear that religion is sneaking into what we do in outer space, no matter what we 
think no matter what we try to do. It's sneaking in there already. So we got to come to terms with it. I totally agree. And I've been convinced by your way of thinking, and especially by this conversation today. And I was a really stone cold militant atheist in high school, an officer of our secular student alliance in in college. Uh, So I'm exactly the demographic that would get defensive about this conversation. But, But I think what you're saying is really true and really important. So thank you so much for joining us today. The book is Astrotopia, the Dangerous Religion of the Corporate Space Race. I've pre-ordered it. I'm really looking forward to reading it. And it will be out in December for, for everyone to enjoy. Thank you both so much. It has been really wonderful to have this conversation with you. I've been looking forward to this part. Same. On Mission Interplanetary, we can't show you pictures of space. We're a podcast. But we can share what space sounds like. Do you want to say it? No, you go ahead. This is Sounds of Space. That was amazing. clearly the heartbeat of the giant space worm that scientists have been keeping secret from the public. It's creeping in from the orbit of Jupiter to devour us all. What's what's this theme of existential threats today? (laughs) We need a new religion to combat it and or worship it. Do you have any serious guesses on what you think it might be? No, I was really hoping you would play the uh, acoustic signals of meteorites exploding in the Martian atmosphere, which the InSight lander just detected. They heard them uh, hit the atmosphere and then actually hit the surface. The paper just came out a few weeks ago. It was a really cool study. Maybe that's a suggestion for a future episode. Those insight sounds from Mars were actually the sounds of space from a Mission Interplanetary podcast a few episodes ago. So if folks want to hear that, go back and uh, tune into the previous episodes. I wanted them again because they were just so cool. Well, it's neither a giant space worm nor meteorites on Mars. That was the sound of a teardrop star. Teardrop stars are created in binary star systems where two stars circle one another in a very close orbit. In some of these systems, the orbits are so close that at least one of the stars is stretched out into a teardrop shape by the gravitational pull of the other star. So the sound that you heard was the pulsing of that star in the direction of its companion star. The fluctuation of light caused by these pulses produces a wave pattern that's been translated into sound and sped up 500,000 times. This particular star is HD 74423, which pulses around 1,600 light years from Earth. The stars complete their orbits in about a day and a half. This awesome sonification comes to us from the great folks at System Sounds. So again, that was the sound of a teardrop star. See, if you had played it at real speed and stretched it out for a million years or so, I would have, I would have gotten it for sure. Absolutely. Let's listen to that again. That's it for this week's episode. We're so glad you joined us. I hope we did an okay job filling Andrew and Katie's shoes. If you haven't yet subscribed to Mission Interplanetary, what are you waiting for at this point? Go do that now. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. 
or write to us from our website, missioninterplanetary.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at II underscore ASU and send us a tweet. And please recommend us to your friends because that would be really cool of you. We have our dignity, but we're begging you, please. The executive producer of Mission Interplanetary is Lance Garavi. Our sound designer and engineer is Steven Christensen. Our intern is Mason Miller. And our music was composed by Mario Iniguez. Mission Interplanetary is a production of Arizona State University's Interplanetary Initiative. Katie and Andrew will be back next week asking the big questions about space exploration. The future is interplanetary. We'll see you there.